open to John chapter 5 as we continue to work our way through this wonderful gospel. How God has revealed himself so amazingly using John, the apostle. I don't know if you're all football fans or not. If you're not, I'm sure you're aware of American football. And uh, so I know that you're aware that there's an offense and defense. And when they line up on the line of scrimmage, it's called, there is an 11-inch neutral zone that runs the width of the field. The defense is not allowed into that. The offense is not allowed into that until the ball is hiked. It is a neutral zone. It is off limits. That zone belongs to neither team. If either team enters it before the ball is hiked, they get penalized. It's the one place on the field that nobody is allowed to be in. Yet when it comes to Christ... That's where we see a lot of people crowding into that very narrow band of neutrality. Last several weeks, while Anne has been on maternity leave, I've had the, the real amazing honor and pleasure to uh, lead the youth group the way Anna does, however uh, faulty I do it. She does it so well. And... Um, And it's amazing to me as I check off the families that come. And some are familiar, some are not. Some are just people in the community that are are dropping off their kids at youth group. Many of the mothers and fathers that drop off their kids are, are not vehemently opposed to Christ. Otherwise, they wouldn't be dropping off their kids at a Christian youth group. Yet what kind of struck me these past several weeks is... To the best of my knowledge, these people are not for Christ either. They don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They don't believe that they need him for atonement for their sins, for eternal security for their souls. They think he's a pretty good guy. They like what he taught. They like how he cared for people. They like his compassion. They like the morality he teaches. But I think they're standing in the neutral zone where Jesus Christ is concerned. Truth of the matter is, Jesus, by his own words, and what we'll look at today, and what we'll hear today, by his own words, does not allow anybody to stand in the neutral zone. He simply does not allow people to remain neutral. I'd like to draw your attention to chapter 5, starting in verse 16. And listen to Jesus' own words about himself. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this very reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, 
but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. That all may be, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be ashamed, do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but the one who sent me. Now, the context of of what Jesus is saying here is in the context of the first 15 verses that we covered last week. He has just healed a man at the pool of Bethesda who has been lame for, for 38 years. The Jews are outraged because he healed on the Sabbath. And they come to him and they demand an answer for the Sabbath breaking. And you would think that Jesus would would take it easy at this point. He just performed a miracle. He's gaining notoriety. You think that he would be nuanced in what he says. Couch things so people won't be offended. But instead, Jesus draws three dark lines in the sand. He leaves no room for them to believe anything less then he is God incarnate. He doesn't leave room for that. He doesn't leave any room for neutrality. And the first way he explodes anyone's neutrality is his identity claim. His identity claim. One of the 15-minute British wartime broadcasts that C.S. Lewis did, that eventually those 15-minute broadcasts were, were brought together in the book that we now call Mere Christianity. In one of those broadcasts, he said this, and this is one of the famous things that, that C.S. Lewis has said. 
He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but not accept his claim as God. This is the one thing that we must not say, Lewis says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Either either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. What Lewis is saying is throughout Scripture, Jesus does not leave any room for neutrality. By his own words, he doesn't leave that option open to us. Look at verse 17 with me. When they come to him and they talk to him about the Sabbath and about working on the Sabbath, what is his reply to them? My father is always working to this very day. And that would have been fine to say. But he adds, I too am working. Make no mistake what Jesus is saying here. And the Jews realized what Jesus was saying here is, listen, he's God and he's working. I'm God and that's why I'm working. That's why it says here, okay, they tried to kill him for the Sabbath, but more importantly it says, but even calling himself God the Father, making himself equal with God. The Jews understood what Jesus was saying. He was claiming the identity of God very clearly. And they tried to kill him for it. In verse 19, he goes a step further. And he says, he builds on that. He says, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. The assertion here is that although they're separate persons, we're the same being. This pushes against the boundaries of our mind, doesn't it? Although we're different persons, we're the same being. That's what Jesus is saying there in verse 19. The 19th century pastor, J.C. Ryle, who is wonderful, wrote about this chapter we're in. He wrote this. There are a few chapters in the Bible, perhaps, where we feel our own shallowness of understanding so thoroughly and discover so completely the insufficiency of all human language to express the deep things of God. So true of verse 19, isn't it? We're separate, but we're one. Trying to explain this, Max Lucado drew from his own experience of translating down in Brazil. He stood next to the speaker, and the speaker had the material before him, And he says, I stood at his side equipped with language. My job was to convey his story to the listeners. I did my best to allow his words to come through me. 
He says, I was not at liberty to embellish or subtract. When the speaker gestured, I gestured. When his volume increased, so did mine. When he got quiet, so did I. When Jesus walked on this earth, he writes, he was, if you will, translating God. And although this analogy falls far short, as all analogies do when you're talking about God, it conveys an understanding of what Jesus is trying to convey to to his Jewish people. Jesus and the Father are the same. Jesus is God incarnate on earth. That's what we're celebrating in this season, isn't it? That God came to earth entombed in flesh, if you will. Jesus is the perfect translation of God. Our public reading of scripture this morning says that, didn't it? Yeah, I hope you listen to those public readings. I mean, what the worship service is trying to do is convey a unit of understanding. And Hebrews 1 says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being. Jesus is not allowing any room for neutrality here. I'm God. Yes, I taught moral things and I'm compassionate, but I'm God. Why do you think Jesus makes such a clear distinction? And as you go through the Gospels, and especially in John, he's always making these very, very clear statements about himself. Why do you think he's doing that? Why is that so important? I think that Roger Olson is right when he wrote on his website, Patheo, if Jesus was only a man, then he could only have been, at best, a prophet, a revealer of God's will, an example to follow. But Christians have always believed that we need more than that. We need a reconciler. And that's why it's so important that Jesus is God. Because we don't need a prophet. We don't need another Moses. We don't need good moral teaching. I mean, that's that's why Anna and, and those in the youth group give of their time like this. Because we want to explain to kids that Jesus is just not a moral guy. You know, how how to live life better from twelve years old on. That Jesus is God and that he need, you need a reconciler. You need to be forgiven. That's what the gospel is all about, guys. It's about forgiveness. It's not about living a better life, a more comfortable life. It's about forgiveness. I loved what the lady said in our video in, in Sunday school class. We watched, if you weren't there, a, um, a testimony of a couple that got married And this man, this Harvard professor, was dating this woman who was a Christian, and this Harvard professor wasn't a Christian. And the woman began witnessing to him. And she said it finally came to a really important discussion about sin. And guys, that's what the gospel is all about. Reconciling a sinful person to a holy God.
And that's only done through a mediator, a reconciler. And that, that person is Jesus Christ. That's why he came. He came to live the life you, you just can't. You cannot live a perfect life under the law. You cannot fulfill the law. If you think you can for a day, you're fooling yourself. If you can't think you can obey God's law for an hour, you're fooling yourself. Your mind is too quick. Your thoughts too evil. He came to live that perfect life and to be brought before a judge and to be condemned. And he willfully took that condemnation. He was declared guilty so that you are not declared guilty before God. And he took the punishment. He took the punishment of sin. We don't think too, too highly of sin. We think it, it, it doesn't matter much. But to God who hates sin, and sin cannot be in his presence, Jesus took the penalty for that. And that penalty is death. And he died on that cross. He absorbed your sin. And what he does is he takes his perfection, his righteousness, and he extends it out to you. And he says, I will take your penalty. You take my prize. And that is the offer of the gospel. And it all starts with, what do you think of sin? Her question to that man. This is, this is the gospel's question to your heart. What do you think of sin? Is it not that big of a deal? Or is it something that separates you from a holy God? And to the degree that you think it separates you from a holy God is the degree to which you will think Jesus Christ and his sacrifice is precious. Because it is. We need a God to reconcile us to God. Not a man. And Jesus was that God. And he had the power sufficient to overcome death. That's the resurrection. Because he was God. He had that power. And that brings us to the second claim, and that is his power claim. Look at verse 21 with me, if you will. He said this to the Jews, again, drawing another dark line in the sand for Jesus. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Look down at verse 24. He goes on and elaborates. He says, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. There's that word again. And will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Here Jesus is again being perfectly clear, crystal clear. He's claiming to have the power to give life. You can't stand in the neutral zone 
when you hear a man say, I have the power to give you eternal life. You can't stand there and say, well, he was a good teacher and I liked his, his, his heart towards people. He, he just doesn't give you that, that wiggle room. I can give you life. Now, now, it's crystal clear in the Old Testament that only God gave life. In Deuteronomy 32, 39, God is speaking and he says, there's no God besides me. I put to death. I bring life. In 1 Samuel 2, 6, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. And in that wonderful story of Naaman who had leprosy, who was dying of leprosy, and he sent a letter to the, the king of Israel at the time that he was coming and that he wanted to be healed by the king. And the king reads it and he says, Am I God? Can I give life? Rhetorical. I can't do that. Only God can. And here, Jesus is claiming, I have that power to give you life. In the 1940s, there was a man named Charles Templeton. Maybe that name will be familiar to some of you. He was a close friend and preaching associate of Billy Graham early on in his crusades. Templeton famously left the faith. He believed that Jesus, that believing that Jesus was God was committing intellectual suicide. In the 1980s, while Lee Strobel was writing his book, The Case for Faith, he caught up with Templeton then in his late 80s. And he asked him about Jesus. And listen to what Templeton said. He was the greatest human being who ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person I've ever encountered in my life and in my readings. He's the most important thing in my life. I know that might sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. He's the most important human being who ever existed. To the best of my knowledge, Templeton died a devout atheist, agnostic rather, standing in the neutral zone. Jesus doesn't allow a person to say, I love him. He's the most important person in my life. And leave it at that. Jesus, by his own words, does not allow you to leave it at that. He doesn't allow that kind of neutrality. Based on Jesus' words, he is either a horrific liar, a deceived and a lunatic, or Lord God. Those are the three options you have as you read Jesus Christ in his own words. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. There's no... I love him, he's great, I adore him. Jesus says, I don't leave you an option to say that. I'm, I'm either a liar, because I say I have the power to give you life, or a lunatic, because I don't, but I believe it. 
or I actually have that power. Those are the three options you have open to you. Uh, Jesus is not the greatest, most important person to ever live because he was moral or wise, but because he alone has the power to give life. That's what makes Jesus Christ important in history. A little later on in John's Gospel, in chapter 14, Jesus says another polarizing statement. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And then if that wasn't enough, he says, nobody's getting to the Father. Nobody's getting to heaven except through me. This is one of the claims that drives the world crazy. This is one of the claims that when we say it, they react so vehemently against. You know, it's, it's polarizing. It's, it's exclusive. It's proprietary. How can you say that? It's intolerant to say that. But, guys, that's the statement that drives our hearts crazy, isn't it? And we love to look outside and point to the world and say... But we have to apply this to our hearts first. How does your heart react when, when I say he, is, he does everything for salvation in your life? You have no part in your salvation. How does that make you feel? To the degree it makes you go, hmm, not sure, is the degree to which you want to earn your own salvation. It underscores, that statement underscores the desire of our own hearts to want to contribute to our own salvation. If you've ever watched Jay Leno, you know, he does the, he used to do the man on the street thing where he goes out and he asks a question and he gets all kinds of different answers. One day he went out on the street and he asked random people to name some of the Ten Commandments. And you know what the most common response was? The most common response was, God helps those who help themselves. I mean, it, it's, it's not only not one of the Ten Commandments, if, if you don't know this, it's not in the Bible. But that is our heart. That's my heart. And that's your heart, too. We're all looking for ways to earn our own salvation. What can I do? Christ alone has the power to give you life. You don't give you life at all. We want to earn our salvation, whether it's through good works and deeds. Let me ask you a question. Whenever you think you're doing a good work... Just pause for a minute and go, why am I doing this? Just ask that simple question and it'll start to reveal your heart. Some of us try and gain our own salvation through living a good life, a good moral life. Others through generosity. Warren Buffett just recently gave away most of his $44 billion estate to five charities. And you know what he said when people asked him about it? He said this, there's more than one way to get to heaven. As you give your tithe, 
Look at your own heart. Why are you giving it? I don't care if it's a dollar, a hundred dollars, or a thousand dollars. We think we earn our own salvation even when we think we choose God. What does Jesus say in the upper room to the disciples? You didn't choose me, I choose you. No, Jesus alone provides life. He alone earned salvation. He alone earned salvation. He alone absorbed our sin. We can't do anything about our sin. He alone paid the penalty for your sins by dying a horrible death. He alone rose from the dead in order to to offer life to you. And he alone is the person that can grant it. If you believe this, he alone gives you eternal life. Jesus explodes neutrality in the last way we'll talk about this morning through his judgment claim. Through his judgment claim. Look at me, look with me at verse 22. If it wasn't enough that he claimed to be God and that he claimed to have life and the power to give life, he also claims that he has the power to judge. He says, moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Nobody likes to be judged. Who here likes to be judged? Raise your hand. You'll be the first one who says, I love to be judged. In fact, judging someone is probably one of the modern day seven deadly sins, if you were to think of it like that. We, we abhor judgment. It's interesting, a professor in Canada, Stephen Anderson, he wanted to get his, his students' attention in his senior philosophy class. He wanted to do something to shock his students into, into making an ethical stand. And so he displayed a picture, without comment, the photo of Bibi Asha. Bibi Asha was an Afghani woman who, as a teenager, was forced into an abusive relationship with one of the Taliban fighters who abused her and kept her in the same room with all of his animals. When she attempted to flee, her family caught her, hacked off her nose and ears, and left her for dead in the mountains. She was saved by a nearby American hospital. He displayed the horrific picture, Aisha's beautiful eyes staring out above a mangled hole where her nose once was. Some students couldn't even raise their eyes to look at the picture. But what was really shocking was that when they were asked their opinion about the situation, the class became confused. They seemed not to know what to think. They were afraid to make any moral judgments. They were unwilling to criticize any situation from a different culture. They said, well, we might not like it, but maybe over there it's okay. Another said, it's just wrong to judge other cultures. 
Professor Anderson wrote, no matter how I prodded them, I couldn't dislodge them from their non-judgmental position. Our society places a high level on not judging, a high matter of importance on not judging. We're afraid to judge anything. And here, Jesus says, I have ultimate authority to judge not just you, but all of mankind. He goes even further in verse 28 and following. He says, don't be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise and be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but the one who sent me. Jesus is saying, I am the judge. I'm the ultimate judge. I'm going to judge you. One of the cornerstones of the Christian faith is the belief that all of history is building to a day of judgment. It's one of the cornerstones of our faith. There will be a time when everyone will be judged. There will be a day when all people stand before the judge, and that judge is going to be Jesus Christ. The judge will be Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. How do you feel about that? Just ponder that just for a moment. How do you feel that you will stand before Jesus Christ and he will judge you? Now, I ask that question, how do you feel? In fact... Answering that question is a great litmus test of your faith. How do you feel about Jesus judging you? Listen to what Kent Hughes says. The very qualities that make Jesus so precious to those who believe are the very qualities that make him frightening to those who don't. Listen to that again. The very qualities that make Jesus so precious to those who believe are the very qualities that make him frightening to those who don't. To those who don't trust Jesus, Jesus standing in judgment over your every thought, your every word, your every deed is terrifying. Jesus standing in judgment over them is terrifying. Everything laid bare. Giving account for everything. And standing before Jesus, no shadow. To those who trust in Jesus' salvation, judge Jesus is precious. You should hear those words and they should be music to your ears. And the degree to which it isn't is the degree to which you don't believe the gospel. Because, Christian, Jesus has forgiven all of your sin and has thrown it as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. You have nothing to fear. Jesus as judge is precious. 
The American theologian Frederick Buchner wrote this, The New Testament proclaims that at some unforeseeable time in the future, God will bring down the final curtain on history, and there will be a day on which our... Uh, on which all our days and all our judgments upon us and all our judgments upon each other themselves will be judged. The judge will be Christ. And then he says this, the one who judges us most finally will be the one who loves us most fully. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that precious? Isn't that good news and not terrifying news? The reaction of a believer to Jesus as judge is one of great relief. Because you have an advocate. It's precious because he loves you. You should anticipate it because the one who judges you most fully and finally is the one who loves you most fully. Let's meditate on that as we go into the Lord's Supper. Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your word. I pray that you will, Spirit, take it, apply it to our minds and our hearts and our wills, and push us in your direction, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.